So I've really enjoyed these videos. Uh, Vigo, if, if you don't know him, he worships at our North Andover campus, and you might see him at Family Night if you're involved with that ministry. Uh, great guy, but really just trying to show you as we think about our global mission partners, so you get someone like Gary, who's working with kids and families in Juarez, Mexico, and you get someone like Vigo, who's working with kids and families right here in the Merrimack Valley. It's the same thing. We, we are all called, how, whatever our background and our training and where God has specifically called us, to live on mission for him. And I'm so grateful for, our, uh, for Maureen and our missions team, uh, who they track all of our missions uh, giving and supporting these different partners for grasping that, that we want to, as a church, just do what our global partners are doing. We're all just doing the same thing as living lives on mission for God, whether we are the church gathered, as depicted here, like we are now, or when we're with our small group or other times, or whether we are the church scattered, let's say this time tomorrow, where you will be living your life wherever God has called you, however he has equipped you. Now, some might ask, well, why do you bother with these foreign mission partners? Why do you do that if the important thing is that we're all living out on mission where we are? And one thing is just it reminds us that we are one church, that there is one universal church. We, we say uh, one Catholic church. The word Catholic just means universal. And so there's, there's one church everywhere, no matter what country you're in. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we are part of one body together. And it, when we partner with folks in other places, it reminds us of that and we celebrate that. Uh, also, we're also mindful of the fact that there are places where there really isn't an established Christian church. And we talked during this sermon series about how there has been a decline of Christianity in our country, but there are some countries where if you were to make this chart, it would only have one or two red dots. And people who study missions and understand how churches grow and flourish, that if you get less than three dots, you really don't have an established church. So a number of our partners are working in places where there is no real church gathered. They're actually only the church scattered, and we want to help invest in them so that they can grow to be self-sustaining, which they are not at this point. Uh, the third reason we partner with these folks is that they need money. They need our financial support. And we are a wealthy people here in this country. And even you may not feel wealthy, but even the poorest in our country have resources. Our homeless shelters have heat and running water and food. And so even if you were homeless, you, there's resources for you. I was listening to a talk that recently that was given by an immigrant from India, and he said, you know, people look at America and they say, look, the, the, people, the people in poverty are fat. It, that obesity is a bigger problem in the poor, the poor folks. And that's an issue. We understand that's an issue. That's not a good thing. But from the outside, when you think of poverty and the people who are the poorest, you think people who have no access to water, no access to food, no kind of shelter, certainly no running water. So we, we have more than enough resources to sustain the ministry of this church in what we're, God has called us to do as a community, as well as support beyond our walls. And we can continue to do that. Um, even, even with, uh, you know, if you 
track in the bulletin, look at our finances. You know, we're running a little deficit in missions and a pretty good deficit operationally. But we still give because there's plenty of resources and it allows us to be generous in that way. So anyway, that's some background of our missions program. You've got your handout and I encourage you to, to learn more about our mission partners, pray for them, and uh, take advantage of that. But we're also looking at this passage of scripture today from 1 Peter chapter 2, which was just read for us. And here, right in the middle of his letter, so Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, the Roman provinces out there. And he's writing to them. And in the middle of his letter, he stops and just reminds them of who they are. Don't forget your identity. And from your identity is going to flow your way of life, really your purpose for life. And he's already done this, this right from the get-go. He reminds them of their identity, who they are in Jesus, and how they are to live. But he stops and says it again. But why? Why, is, why do we just keep have to, reminding our, have to remind ourselves and be reminding ourselves who we are in Jesus? And it's important for us because it's easy for us to forget. Just to forget what Jesus has done. To forget who we really are. What is my truest identity? and my greatest purpose in life. I know that it's easy to forget because I forget. I can go throughout my day. I can operate in a way that doesn't acknowledge who I really am. So just as Peter has to remind these Christians, we need to remind one another, and I need a reminder, who am I really? So, so this morning we're going to look at who am I and then how now do I live? And so pretty simple outline. But there is a big, beautiful background of Old Testament, of Old Testament writing that is foundational to understand this passage. So I want to look at those together. To do that, I'd love it if you had a Bible. So in the pew rack in front of, in front of you, you could share with somebody near you. There's these black books. Those are Bibles. <laughs> We're going to use them. If you have a mobile device that has a Bible app on it, use that. Open that up. Um, if you have a mobile device without that type of an app, there's free ones. They're super useful. Um, you've got the technology. You can have the Word of God right there. So we're going to look at some verses from the Old Testament as well. Let's pray as we, as we do this. So Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for how consistent it is, how true and how full it is. So now as we gaze into it, Lord, give us wisdom. Uh, we know that your Holy Spirit is here in this place as we have gathered in your name. And we, and we know that your Holy Spirit is with each of us who believe. So Lord, may your Spirit just fill us in such a way that we would understand your heart and understand your word. We commit this time to you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, first thing is a reminder of our identity. This is printed on the back of your bulletin. Verse 9. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This language mirrors a passage from the Old Testament. So if you would turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. So right in the front of the Bible, you have the book of Genesis, and then right to Exodus 19. This is the time where uh, God's people had been in slavery, they were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them through a leader named Moses, and they had, they had escaped from Egypt, they traveled across the Red Sea, and that whole, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, but now they're in the desert. 
God has provided food and water for them. And, and now they are at a place where God is revealing his law to them, or he's going to be. But here's how God introduces this. Exodus 19, starting at verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So stop there for a second. So God's saying, I took you out of a slavery, out of where you were, and I've, I've chosen you for myself. I've taken you for myself. Now look at what he says in verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession or special possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is a beautiful promise from God that his people will be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the same words that Peter's using. And Peter's saying, this has happened. And we can't perfectly keep God's covenant, but Jesus did. And because we belong to Jesus, this is all fulfilled in us. You are the chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Each one of these things is just a great reminder to us. You are a chosen people that God chose you. Now, you are a chosen people. That does not mean you are a choice people. As if it was you know, a professional sports draft where God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are saying, okay, look at, this. Look at these recruits and here's the best ones and we're going to take the best. It wasn't because you were so great, but because his love was so great. That for no merit of anything you've done, he chose you to be his own. And now you're a royal priesthood. That every one of us is a priest or a minister. We, we serve God everywhere we are. It's not that we are a church that has you know, one priest or certain people are priests or certain people are ministers. This is the priesthood of all believers. He said you're all a nation of, of priests, of royal priests. You serve God. He says, you're a holy nation. And earlier in the letter, if you remember, Peter taught them that they were exiles and strangers in the world. But it's not that you're homeless. It's just our nation is a spiritual nation. You do belong. You you are part of a great nation that doesn't have political boundaries. It doesn't have geographic boundaries. It has uh, really no boundaries. It is a great nation. It is a powerful nation. And God is our king. And you are God's special possession. I don't know if you have any special possessions. I don't have a lot of things that I kind of cling to. But my children do. When, when my son was really little, and I've told some of you this before, he used to collect sticks. I don't know why, but he just he would collect sticks and he'd keep them in kind of one place. Every time we went somewhere, he'd find a stick, and they weren't, in my opinion, anything special. He just liked it and put it in the van, we'd drive it home, and he'd put it with his stick collection. One time we went to vacation in the White Mountain National Forest. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with New Hampshire, in the White Mountains, but there's a lot of sticks. <laughs> we were hiking along, and he would just pick up, as he saw the ones he liked, he would just pick them up. And by the time we left, he had just a bundle of sticks that we brought home with us, and they were his special 
sticks. I will never forget the day that I suggested that we get rid of this stick collection. I even tried to bribe him. I said, look, I said, we'll make a, let's use this stick collection to start a fire. And on that fire, on the fire, we'll have marshmallows and s'mores, chocolate, graham crackers. Oh no. Dad, those sticks are special to me. God says, you know, there's all these things that could attack us, all these things that could destroy us. And God says, ah, that's my special possession. Those are my people. They're, my, they're priests. They're ministers in my name. They are a holy nation. I chose them. And that's the reminder of the identity. Now, along with that reminder, Peter also remind, reminds us that we weren't always that way. Look at verse 10. He said, once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look, something changed. You became, you have this new identity, but God had to do something great to change your identity to make you that way. And when he starts saying, once you had not received mercy, once you were not a people, this language mirrors a beautiful passage, or kind of a strange passage, actually, in the prophet Hosea. So if you'll turn with me, prophet Hosea. A little harder to find. So in the section of the Old Testament with all the prophets, there's the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Or shorter, shorter writings, really. We preached through the minor prophets a couple of years ago. I remember Pastor, uh, Pastor David Midwood preached on Hosea. He said, he said, your relationship with God is like a marriage. And he said, your relationship with God is like a really bad marriage. And he was talking about Hosea's life, and uh, I'll show you what he meant by that. But basically, Hosea's life became a living object lesson for the people of Israel. And look at verse, so God called him to marry a prostitute. So look at verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, this is Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So he's saying, You're going to marry, a, a, really, literally, a woman of prostitution. And because my people, this represents my people, they've. they've been adulterous to me. They've worshipped other gods when I'm supposed to be their only object of worship. And look at verse 6. Gomer conceived, his wife conceived and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love, or the word mercy there, to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. He said, name your daughter no mercy. It's the same word that Peter uses. You once had not received mercy. He said, my people, no mercy. And then there was a son that was born, verse 9. The Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. He said, you've got this adulterous wife. Your, one of your kids is named no mercy to you anymore. The other is, you are not my people. And then... And, 
this adulterous wife goes off and she's adulterous and she ends up in a situation where she is somebody else's possession. And that, but the story doesn't end there. Look at chapter 3. Flip over Hosea chapter 3. Uh, right at the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Skip down to verse 2. So this is Hosea. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. And I told her, you were to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. He, she gets herself to a point where she is so broken and, and so unfaithful that he has to, with silver, purchase her life back for himself. And here Peter said, once you were, once you were like, uh, no mercy, not my people. He said, but now you have received mercy. So he had to buy us back. But we were not purchased with silver or barley or anything material. Peter reminds us in chapter 1, and we looked at this verse a couple weeks ago. But 1 Peter 1, 18, he said, It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you, but with the precious blood of of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You had to be bought back. And you were bought back with the blood of Jesus, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for our wandering and our unfaithfulness. And that was the price that was paid, that we can be, that we can receive mercy, that we can be a people, that we can be the holy nation the, the royal priesthood of God, that we, can, uh, be, that we can receive that mercy. And here's this great reminder. You're the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the special possession. You've received mercy. You are a people. Why do we need to be reminded so much of what our identity is? Why do we have to keep repeating this week after week? This is who you are. Don't forget. Like I said, we are prone to forget. Because the human heart condition is not, our default condition is not to receive grace. The default condition of the human heart is what I'll call, operates on a works-based religion principle. And this is how most of the world operates. Works-based religion I would describe as, I'll do the best I can and God will then accept me or bless me or somehow be involved if I just do it well enough in my life. So it's based on what I do. The problem with that is that I fall short. I do my best and I still fall short. I'm still guilty before God. I don't deserve anything from him. Or on the flip side, you might think you're actually doing pretty good. Actually, I have earned something from God. I'm doing everything right and God should bless me. And it, should, and it turns into pride and self-righteousness. So whether you feel guilt or you feel pride, we're still totally missed the mark. And God says, no, you're people who, are, who have received mercy. You've received my grace, a, a free gift. Jesus accomplished it for you. And we have to train our hearts to receive grace and to admit we can't do it on our own and to admit we actually have not done it perfectly. And we have to remind ourselves day after day who we really are, people who are rooted in grace.
That's our identity. We've received mercy. Now, the, but the, the great thing is, as we train our hearts to understand that, that we have received mercy, we realize that I've received something and now I'm an agent of mercy. That it's not just for me, but then I can live from that. So here's where we understand our purpose. So back to verse 9. So you're the chosen people, the royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The whole purpose of this whole thing is that we can praise God for it. That we can praise God for what we've received. That we can return our lives in worship to him. And how do we worship? Our whole lives become worship. That's why we've been talking about this, you know, what does our life look like? in light of our relationship with God as we scatter about, that as, as Scripture teaches in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Our act of worship is a, a lifestyle, a living way of, of sacrifice and giving back to God. And that gives Him glory. That's how we praise. That's how we worship. And he elaborates on this in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He said, look, if you want to live a life that receives mercy and then praises God for that, you're going to be in a fight against your own sinfulness. And I urge you to abstain from the sinful desires. Which, just this internal war that happens. And Peter can say that. He can say, I urge you for this, because he understood what it meant to be at war with his own sin. He, he knew the inner turmoil. He, Jesus warned him directly. Jesus spoke to him on a night when Jesus needed his support in prayer. And, and a night when Jesus knew that he needed to be spiritually prepared. He warned Peter. He said, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation and the, your, the spirit is willing, but your body is weak. Your flesh is weak, Peter. And he warned him. And what did Peter do? He fell asleep. And again, Jesus warned him, just be alert and watchful and prayerful. And again, he fell asleep. And he was, there was this you know, spiritually, you know, I'm willing, but he's at war. His flesh just didn't do it. And so as it played out that very night that Peter denied Jesus three times and I don't even know this man. And let Jesus down completely, his friend who had walked with him and who had loved him and, and taught him, and he just, he failed. In the Gospel of Luke, when, when Peter realized that he had lost this battle with sin and denied Jesus, it said that he went outside and he wept bitterly. He knew the deep pain of failure. And, and when we lose that battle with sin, so with great authority, he can write this and say, look, I'm urging you. Stay away from sinful desires. Your heart is at war. To be a Christian is to be at war with sin. Before I knew Jesus, I do whatever I want. But now that I know Jesus, I have to fight with my own sinful, broken desires. So the question is, where are you battling? This time tomorrow, when you're in your place of work, or you're in your neighborhood, or in school, or wherever you are tomorrow, 
What, what, are the, what are the areas in your life where you feel tempted by sin and how are you battling that? And who's battling with you? How are you looking for strength and grace from God to, to fight well? Now you might say, I don't really feel like I'm at battle with sin in my life. I don't feel that. If you're not in battle with sin in your life, then you're not following Jesus. To follow Jesus means that I am turning from my own sin and then the, the attacks of the devil and his demons and, and the brokenness of a sinful world. I am at odds with those things and those things tempt me. Jesus himself was tempted without sin. He did not sin. But Jesus faced temptation as we all do. Where is that temptation? Where is that war? And we seek, to, we seek to honor God and live holy lives. Why? Because, well, that's our purpose. But also, our worship leads to witness. Look at verse 12. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Peter's just using the words of Jesus. He actually listened to Jesus when Jesus was teaching. He was there in, in, when Jesus, in, as accounted in, in Matthew chapter 5, Peter was there when Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And now here he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. It's almost the same exact language. He said people see your life when we're out on the front lines of our lives and interacting with the world around us, that people see that in our lives, point people to Jesus. Now, what do people see? Not perfect lives, but lives that are submitted to the lordship of Jesus, lives that are fighting sin, that are pursuing holiness, that are pursuing love around us in every way, whatever temptation comes. That's what people see. And I mentioned this book a few weeks ago, this book called Everyday Church which speaks about a lot of these same things we've been, written by Tim Chester, a lot of the same thing, themes we've been working on. There's a great quote, he says this. It is, simply, it is not simply that ordinary Christians live good lives that enable them to invite friends to evangelistic events. Our lives are the evangelistic events. See, his point together is that our our lives that we live in response to who we truly are in Jesus is what God is using to draw people to himself. It is the apologetic. and It's good to be able to defend our faith, to speak intelligently about our faith, to speak intelligibly about our faith. That's important. But what really speaks loud is the life well-lived, that's pursuing holiness, that's fighting sin, that's living into the grace that we've been giving, flowing from the mercy of God. And it shuts people up who would otherwise condemn you or hate you or call you a hater for following Jesus. You know, that uh, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God. It, you know, people... People can scoff and they can say whatever they want about you, but you live a, 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 an upright life before someone. And again, not a perfect life, 
but a life that is marked with grace and love and hope. That speaks volumes. All right, next steps for us. Just how do we apply this? A uh, couple things. On a global level, use this booklet that you, gave, you got today and use it to pray. Use it to guide your prayers this week. Uh, learn about these folks. As Kim said, there's more information on our website. And you could pick, even just pick one that's kind of close to your heart. You can just pray more specifically for them. And uh, continue to give generously to Free Church Missions as these folks are living out their faith in various places and agents of mercy in different ways. It takes all of us to do that. You know, this church is, is well-established and the building looks nice and things seem to be going well, but it does take a lot of sacrificial giving to keep these things going. There's no sort of reserve that we use to, to fund missions. It's just gifts of people. So I encourage you to continue to give sacrificially and generously to that. Um, so on a global level. But on a local level, thinking about your everyday mission, you know, how are you abstaining from the, that war that you're at? How can you engage back into it? Because it is easier to just to sort of to not fight those things and just to ignore this war. But how can you engage it? Because if you're not at war with sin, then you're not following Jesus. And we have a new identity, a new purpose for living. We find it in Jesus Christ to worship him primarily, but also to be his agents of mercy in the world around us. Amen.